So last week we started the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, last book of the Bible, written by a gentleman named John. And it is um, visions that God gave John communicated in a really unique way. What, um, what God gave John is what scholars use the term inexpressible and then gave John the job of communicating the inexpressible. Good luck with that, John. <laughs> so what we have is a book of symbols and images and references that takes a lot of, of work to understand. And many of you have, are joining us in that reading. You're doing studying on your own, which is great. And please write down your questions and bring them, bring them here so we can continue to work through this stuff together. Right, so um, last week, Bruce, could you put up the first slide for me? The Revelation... Um, Let's try this. Here we go. Last week, I gave you two different images, right? Sometimes the book of Revelation feels like the back of needlepoint. Can you put that one up, Bruce? That looks kind of like a mess, right? As soon as I tell you what it is, you're going to go, oh. It's a Mountain Dew can. The other side of that is a Mountain Dew can, right? So you can see it now, can't you? A little bit. So to help clarify things, what we need, the next image that I gave you was the box, the, the box top for a puzzle. We, give an, we get an overview of the whole thing so we can kind of see what the goal is, where, where we're headed. This week, the image that I'm going to give you is that of a foundation of a structure. This foundation is poured concrete, right? So there's some sand and other stuff mixed together with water. So the two ingredients, concrete and water, come together and they make this foundation that the house gets built upon. The foundation that we're going to talk about today, two pieces of the two ingredients to the recipe for this foundation, the Old Testament and the historical setting in which John was writing. All right? Old Testament and the historical setting which John was writing. And then if you could put up the big idea slide, the hope and prayer is is that that will leave us with this the unified story of the Bible that culminates in the book of Revelation that has brought hope and comfort and challenge to billions of people throughout history, that its author is worthy, worthy of our humble adoration and our most enthusiastic praise, right? So when we look at the story of the Bible from Old Testament through to Revelation at the end, and we see God throughout weaving his sometimes like looking like the back of a of a embroidery and we put we're able to put those pieces together and then we look at the encouragement that John gave not only to the first century church but to us as well it should draw us to um, to worship Bruce can you put the next slide up all right so Old Testament there's things that we give titles to like um, like Occam's razor or Atlas's stone this is Agabedes chart right this is <laughs> I don't know if you guys know this or not, but Dan Agabedi has the spiritual gift of data synthesis and presentation. This started, I sent him a spreadsheet that had every verse in the book of Revelation that's referenced in the Old Testament with the Old Testament reference. And I said, please take this and tell me how many, how many references per book. Right? There's 28 different books, I think. I only listed the top five just because it's the easiest to see. 
98 and Isaiah, this is every time John alludes to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation, right? So there's, there's the top five. If you took all the references to the New Testament, or sorry, all the references to the Old Testament that are in the New Testament outside of Revelation, added them up, it wouldn't equal what's in Revelation. It's like 400, the conservative number is like 428, 30-ish references, allusions to the Old Testament. There's only 408 verses in the book of Revelation, right? So just about every verse, we're getting thrown back to, we're being asked to think about the Old Testament. So I'm gonna put up a chart. I don't want you to get caught up in remembering the names of this stuff. The thought I want you to have is that the Old Testament is important. We can't cut ourselves loose from the Old Testament. The Bible is one unified story, and it's all about Jesus. So again, don't get caught up in the names, but I just want you to let it sink in of the way John uses the Old Testament to help communicate the inexpressible stuff that God gave him for the first century church and for us. Okay, I think my gadget might be working here, so let me see if I can get this back. Look at that. Okay, so the first way that John uses the Old Testament is as literary prototype, and that means that there's a concept in the Old Testament that he will take and use as a pattern. And the example that I'm going to give you, nope, I lost it. Sorry, next slide, Bruce. Is this idea of the Son of Man. First time we see, well, we see it a lot in the Old Testament. But one of the things that, um, one of the places where we see it most often is in Daniel. And it communicates the idea of a human that's also divine. Right, so Daniel has a vision and he sees someone that appears like the son of man. And he calls him the ancient of days. And um, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power over all nations, all peoples, every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And then we move into the gospels. The single most common way that Jesus referred to himself, the son of man. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus heals a guy, right? And then in, in this, I'm sorry, I keep turning my back to you. Um, this is Jesus talking. Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home, right? Daniel 14, he was given all authority. The Son of Man has authority. And then in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, John says he saw someone that looked like the Son of Man. The articles are important because there's several references in the Old Testament to a Son of Man. Ezekiel, God calls Ezekiel Son of Man over and over and over again. Never the Son of Man. The Son of Man is always meant to point us to Jesus. Okay, Bruce, you go to the next slide. So the next one, number two, thematic use of the Old Testament. So there are themes that run from the beginning to the end. And the first one, or the, the biggest one, I think, as we think about the book of Revelation, is this idea of the day of the Lord. And because the Old Testament is so important to our understanding here, um, and I want this to sink in, I'm going to show you guys another Bible Project video, and they're going to explain what the day of the Lord is. All right. <clears throat> So I wanted to take the time to watch that whole video as we explore the theme of the Day of the Lord because it covers so much of the stuff we're going to come back to. Like, we're going to devote a whole Sunday to that idea of 
Babylon, right? And we're going to talk about resistance and subversion and all of that stuff. So um, the next way that John uses the Old Testament is an analogical use of the Old Testament. He takes, go to the next slide, Bruce. Like the plagues from the Exodus. There's 10 different plagues that God brings upon Egypt when Pharaoh hardens his heart or God hardens Pharaoh's heart. You see, they're very similar to the, um, throughout the book of Revelation, there's a series of judgments that God brings. There are three different perspectives on the same judgments. There's seals that get opened and bad stuff happens. There's trumpets that get blasted and bad stuff happens. There's bowls that get poured out and bad stuff happens. The plagues that God brought on Egypt were all attacks on different um, Egyptian deities, right? My speculation is that God did this. He's choosing to use similar means because he's going to go after the deities of the day when his day comes, when the day of the Lord, like the last final ultimate day of the Lord comes, right? So he, analogical use of the Old Testament. Go ahead, one more. Universalization. So, um, John, in the Old Testament, we hear about the tribes of Israel. In the book of Revelation, we hear about the tribes of the world. And John has been accused by some, I guess, ultra-conservative scholars of misusing the Old Testament to do this. But what John is doing is he is taking the promises that God made to Abraham. Abraham, through you, the nations will be blessed. And Jesus is the, the perfect member of the community of Israel, lives a perfect life, dies an innocent death, rises triumphantly, fulfills all the law of the Old Testament. So because Jesus did that, the door is opened to the tribes of the world, not just the tribes of Israel. The church doesn't replace Israel. It's an expansion of Israel. Lots of people argue back and forth on that. I'm telling you what my opinion is based on what I've, what I've read. Uh, nope, stay back on the other one. So the uh, informal, direct prophetic fulfillment, that's just John looking at Revelation saying, oh, okay, Jesus did this, and Zechariah wrote about it. Oh, he's, like, he's using Jesus' life to see into the Old Testament. We talked about this a little bit last week, how we have to go back and forth and back and forth to get the full picture of the Bible. Zechariah prophesied that the nation of Israel would mourn over the Messiah. John comes back and says that again in the book of Revelation, it's not just the nation of Israel, it's everybody who mourns over the death of the, of the Messiah and will ultimately celebrate his return. Um, indirect prophetic typological fulfillment. This is nonverbal prophecy. In the book of Isaiah, there's a guy named Eliakim. Stay with me now, you ready? He's got a set of keys. He's second in control of all of Israel. He's got a set of keys to the castle. If you want to get to the king, you've got to go through Eliakim, and he's got to open the door to let you into the presence of the king. In the book of Revelation, John says, Jesus has those keys now. Not only does he have the keys to the kingdom of David, but he's got the keys to the kingdom of, or not kingdom, of death and Hades. He, Jesus is the one that controls all judgment and salvation. Who enters the kingdom and who doesn't? uses a key. A key. Isn't that pretty cool? A key. Inverted use of the Old Testament. <clears throat> the Old Testament, um, we hear that the Gentiles will bow down before the nation of Israel. That gets flipped around in the, in the book of Revelation where it says 
the Gentiles will kind of be over those who claim to be Jewish, but John used the term, instead they worship at the throne of Satan, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But in some of these towns that John is writing to, there are actual monuments to Satan. And so these people claim to be Jewish, but they're worshiping at the temple of another God. So God says, you guys have lost your way. These people who you consider outsiders are now going to rule over you. Last one. This is the coolest one, but none of us will ever be able to pick up on it unless we become fluent in ancient Greek, right? I just wanted to ship just because this is so cool. They're called um, solecisms. John gets accused of, ha- accused of having really bad grammar, right? Like his Greek is terrible. So now you go to that next slide, Bruce. The first time we see this in the book of Revelation in chapter one, and it's like his worst example of it. John says, grace to you and peace from the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Now I read several different, like I, I still couldn't get my brain around exactly how this worked, but people who study this stuff the Greek that John used, it was a mistake. It should not have been used. And they tell us that he did it intentionally to make his readers think of Exodus 3.14, where God is talking to Moses, and Moses says, if the people of Israel ask who's sending me, God says, I am who I am. The preexistent, all-sufficient one is the God of Revelation, is the God of the burning bush, right? That's what John wanted people to make the connection. And he does this throughout the book of Revelation. He makes grammatical mistakes. It would be like, I'm up here and I'm telling a story and I'd be like, I ain't doing that. And I don't typically use ain't. You got, it would like clue you in to that I was trying to get your attention to something. Does that make sense? All right, that was a lot of stuff. All you got to remember, John uses the Old Testament a lot and lots of different ways. And then sometimes he'll take these and he'll grab two or three of them and he'll throw them in a blender and it'll come out. He never, it's, it becomes even more confusing because he never says, according to the prophet Isaiah, or you have heard it said, or in fulfillment of the scripture. He never says any of that. So it's up to us as the readers to get in tune with that stuff. A guy named G.K. Beale um, put up the next slide. He kind of summarizes this thought for us. John simply understands the Old Testament as prophetically pointing forward to the events of the New Testament and to Christ, and he does so in the same way that Jesus himself and all the other New Testament writers did. By far, the most important key to understanding John's vision, understanding Revelation, is understanding the Old Testament. The key to understanding Revelation is understanding the Old Testament. So, 39 books, right? It's a lot to get our brains around. 28 of the 39, John alludes to or, or references. Remember, we're doing this together. We ask each other questions under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, okay? Don't feel overwhelmed. It's okay to feel overwhelmed, but don't feel without hope here, right? All right, next one. So, Old Testament is ingredient one in the recipe for the foundation. Second one is the historical context. Back and forth, everybody, um, everything from 60, the year 60, all the way up to you know, beyond 95 kind of written in hindsight. But the best scholarship tells us that John wrote in about 95 AD, and he was writing in the midst of the Roman Empire. And uh, what's really interesting is John never uses the word Rome or Roman Empire or anything like that. 
but his readers were definitely picking up what he was laying down. Could you go to the next slide? Revelation 17, 9. He's, um, this is John relaying a vision that he had of an evil woman who rides a beast. Right? This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads, the seven heads of the beast, are the seven hills on which the woman sits. This is a coin from first century Rome. Seven hills, the goddess Roma, seven hill, there are seven hills in the geography of Rome sitting on her. It, beyond a shadow of a doubt, John was writing about the Roman Empire. When he said Babylon, he meant Rome. That's who he was writing about. And he meant all the other empires that would follow, that would rule oppressively, that would rule unjustly, that would rule just looking out for themselves and do whatever they had to to get their, their way, to succeed, to gain territory, all of that stuff. So 95 AD, Rome, under the reign of Emperor Domitian, of the, the Caesars. All right, you guys, if you're in touch with social media, guys, all the time you spend thinking about the Roman Empire, this is where it comes in handy. All right, here we go. Next one. I'm, gonna go, I'm not doing a lot on each of these, just, just kind of an overview. We, we all kind of, I think maybe the thing we're most familiar with is the idea of the Roman roads. There's still Roman roads in existence. Whatever the Romans did with their concrete, it got harder over time. Unlike the people who build 95, it crumbles in like, <laughs> like three weeks, right? There are still sewers from the Roman Empire being used today in Rome. I, concerns me a little bit, but I, you know... Um, the 11, they built 11 aqueducts to bring water into Rome. The dome of the Pantheon is still the world's largest non-reinforced dome. I don't understand architecture, but it's apparently some sort of miracle of, of engineering. The poverty in the Roman Empire was rampant. 55% of people in the Roman Empire lived below what we would call the poverty line, below the subsistence level. 30% of the population was enslaved. There was an incredible um, gap between the haves and the have-nots. And what's interesting is kind of Christianity was spread across all of that. It wasn't in any one of those, those demographics. It was, the Roman Empire was highly urbanized. Um, the, so think about this for a second. The population density of modern-day Manhattan is approximately 100 people per acre, okay? For those of you who have been to my house, put 100 people in my yard. That's like, it's pretty dense. The, the population of Rome at that time was like a, a million. Antioch, Ephesus, 500,000, 350,000. There's speculations that those cities had a population density upwards of like 117, 120 per acre. 20% more dense than modern-day Manhattan. Like, as people living on top of each other. They lived in, families lived in one-room tentaments, tent tentaments, tenements, right, with no ventilation. So they would cook, and there would often be fatal fires. The tenements would get overcrowded, so the structures would collapse. Life in urban, the urban Roman Empire, was dangerous. Disease was endemic. 50% of people born did not make it past the age of five. It was, it was a, rough, <laughs> a rough experience. The imperial cult 
Romans believe that the Roman god Jupiter established Rome and the Roman Empire to be his representative to the world and to um, point people to him. In so doing, the emperor himself was assumed, presumed to be divine, and he was supposed to be worshipped. There were... um, The book of Revelation was written to seven cities. And each of the seven cities that were written to, there was some physical representation of emperor worship, whether it was a statue or a temple. But the people were were required to, were asked to uh, worship the, the emperor. This idea, again, if you're familiar with the Roman Empire, of Pax Romana, Roman peace. Roman peace is kind of like it's a misnomer because Rome brought peace by military conquest and force. It brought, if your region was in turmoil, they would come in, they'd destroy everybody and everything, and then they'd set up shop. That's how they brought peace. And they maintained peace by the threat of military force and, and violence. The, um, the big idea, the imperial cult took a secular power and gave it sacred meaning. So it took something secular, made it sacred. The emperor, the institutions, the, the idea of Rome itself, all those things were sacred. So go ahead and put the next slide up. So John is writing against, right, compromise and complacency. He's writing to the people of God to encourage them not to compromise in light of the danger of living in Rome, in light of um, the disease and the temptations that the technology and the, oh, look at those people up there. They have all this money. Don't give in. Don't give in. And to not sit back on your laurels and just kind of be content with going along to get along. Much of the book of Revelation is critique of the people of God who got complacent, who just like, oh, it is what it is, and who compromised the things that God was calling them to, the way that God was asking them to live. John wrote against compromise and complacency. All right, the last piece of life in the Roman Empire we're going to talk about is persecution. A lot of people think the book of Revelation was written at a time of just overwhelming systemic persecution. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, even in Revelation, we read about this, this person named Antipas who was killed for his faith. But the persecution was not systemic. Right? It's not, it wasn't everywhere all the time. And this, there was a, a pretty famous correspondence between a Roman governor and the emperor. And the governor writes to the emperor. This is Pliny to the emperor Trajan. And he writes to him, and he's like, I don't know what to do with these Christians. He's like, if I find out that they're not you know, worshiping you, I bring him in, I ask him, do you worship Caesar? No, I ask him again, do you worship Caesar? No, ask him a third time. If they still say no, then I execute him. Caesar says, okay, well, that sounds good. Keep, keep doing that. And Pliny's confused. He's like, well, what, what, if, what if they used to worship Jesus, but then, then they go back and they say, no, I'll worship Caesar instead. What do I do then? Should I still kill him? And Caesar's like, no, 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 it's okay. If they... If they and they use this term, if they repent, if they repent from not worshiping Caesar, it's okay. Let them, let them, let them be. Right? So 
basically, um, as long as Christians kept their mouth shut, stayed out of the way, they were, they were okay. John was writing, go ahead and put the next slide up. He was writing to prepare the people of God for impending persecution, for impending conflict, for impending opposition. Basically, as we read through, especially when we get in chapter two and three, um, God has a word for each one of these seven churches that John is writing to. And John is basically telling the people of God in the Roman Empire to go pick a fight by the way they live. Right? Go pick a fight by living like Jesus. Don't bow down to anybody but Jesus. Don't worship anybody but Jesus. And that is going to stir up trouble. That's going to get you called before the governors, the local magistrates. That's what's going to, where the rubber is going to meet the road. All right, so um, go ahead. Next slide. We have these references in the Old Testament. We have all these phrases, the ancient of days, the son of man, the holder of the keys, the first and the last. All of those should make us think of the one and the only true God. Right? And it should draw us to worship. Go ahead and put the next slide up. So eight different times throughout the book of Revelation, we see this phrase or something pretty close to this. Fell down and worshiped God. Whether it's John when he realizes he's standing in front of Jesus or it's the, el- the elders around the throne room of God or the creatures with all the eyes and the wings and floating around or, um, or the angels. When they encounter the God of the universe in his throne room, all their reactions are the same. They fell down and they worshiped God. And our English translation is lacking, right? So put up the, the next slide, please. Piptokai proskineo theos. Fell down and worshiped God. But the translation is more like they fell on their faces and they offered God a holy kiss. They fell on their faces and they adored God recognizing who he is and who they were. That was all they could do. They fell down and worshiped. Proskuneo is that we prostrate, right? We, we prostrate ourselves before God and we worship him. And so as we, we get more and more into, um, into Revelation, we're going to feel more and more called to these ideas of fighting against compromise and complacency, to being prepared for opposition and conflict. We're going to want to resist the, the temptation of everything around us that worships whatever, whatever you know, if it's, if it's capitalism, if it's a political party, if it's a flag, if it's an ideology, whatever it is that we would put in the place of the one true God. John wrote to the first century church and he's writing to us to resist and to subvert those tendencies and to worship the one and only true God. And then as we come to terms with that, as we wrestle with the complexities and the symbolism and the images and the difficulty of the book of Revelation, we get drawn back to that big idea, right? That the the continuous story of the Bible points us to God as its author and we should celebrate that, right? We respond to him with humble adoration and enthusiastic praise. Father God, thank you so much for your book, even the confusing, complicated parts. Thank you for the visions that you gave John. Thank you for smart people who devote their lives to trying to help us 
um, understand this stuff better. God, we ask that you would continue to guide our reading, our studying, our time together, our conversations, that you, Holy Spirit, you would protect us from the things that you don't want us to take away from this, that you would protect us from the fear and the confusion, and that you would guide us into further understanding. And in that further understanding, God, we would be drawn to worship. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. Amen.